to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back. And today's discussion is really fun and kind of surprising. So I hope you'll really enjoy the conversation. My guests today are Dr. Tyra Feinstad and Adrian Mann. Dr. Mann is an assistant professor of hospital medicine at the University of Colorado and Rocky Mountain Regional VA Medical Center and associate program director for the Colorado University Internal Medicine Residency Program. She is also a certified life coach and co-director of Better Together, a life coaching program for women trainees in graduate medical education. Her scholarly interest is in the development, application, and study of coaching methodology in sustainable programs to promote trainee resilience and well-being by encouraging a growth mindset and creation of individualized definitions of success. Dr. Tyra Feinstad is an Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Colorado, where she practices primary care at Lowry Internal Medicine. She is also the Resident Director for her clinic's outpatient curriculum and has a scholarship interest in learner-centered feedback and psychologically safe educational environments. She is a certified professional life coach and has built and co-directs a coaching curriculum for medical trainees called Better Together Physician Coaching. She is a recovering approval addict on a never-ending path to self-awareness and as a medical director and educator, her purpose is to create space for change through helping learners across inner validation rather than relying on external praise. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Feinstad and Dr. Mann. Hi, Tyra. Hi, Adrian. How are you guys? Hi, we're great. Thanks so much for having us. Ditto. <laughs> <laughs> nice to see you both. I'm really excited to have this conversation. It just feels like there's so much in the world that is so heavy. And um, especially, I think, for physicians, I just talked to one of my colleagues today that experienced a really tough thing. And, and you know, it's it's a hard job. It's a really hard job. This isn't like just regular jobs. It's a hard job taking care of other people. And, and even though everything is not necessarily life or death, it's big stuff, right? It, we, it's a lot of responsibility being a doctor. So I, not like that was just just an aha for me at, after 30 years, like, oh, yeah, hey, it's hard. <laughs> I just felt so nice with you saying that up front. Like, I wish yeah. someone had told me exactly how you just said it back in medical school. It's a hard job sometimes. And sometimes it feels harder than it felt before. And sometimes you wonder if it's just going to keep feeling harder or if it will go back to how it maybe felt before. And I feel like we're in a middle zone right now where I'm not sure well, and and as I was saying before we hopped on, you know, I um, was talking with Adrian, it's it's like medicine, it's like dirty laundry. There's always more. There's always something, you know, there's an inbox, there's a chart, there's a phone call, there's a patient message, you know, um, there's there's just one more thing. So to actually be able to step away, turn it off, not think about it, 
mm, you know, like is self-care like, you know, getting your toenails painted? Is that really it? Like, no, it doesn't make the mark. So I'm really delighted to talk with both of you guys about how physicians can and really healthcare healers can take better care of themselves possibly and how you guys have come to that. So before we start, I just wanted um, you guys to be able to share a little bit about just, um, you know, your journeys into medicine. Why, why medicine? So Tyra, I'll start with you. Why medicine? This is actually a new one for me. I love that question. I'm Tyra Feinstead. I'm an internist here at the University of Colorado. And I actually don't remember a time when I didn't want to be a doctor. I was like one of those little kids who had the books about being a doctor and the human body. I was so fascinated by it. And I just think I always wanted to be a doctor, which is really interesting to reflect on because I also now identify as a person who has been constantly seeking approval for a long time. And even I remember in high school or maybe even middle school, I got the idea in my head that becoming a doctor was going to be really hard and require all this work and really good grades and people approving of you along the way. And so I think that it started really early on for me and continued certainly through medical school and maybe even revved up a bit in residency when we stopped getting graded so regularly. I started seeking approval elsewhere, like in praise or from patient comments or made up ways that my brain decided how I was enough. And then in facultyhood, I stopped getting any feedback. It felt like no one even comes in the room with you anymore to watch what you're doing when you're an attending. And at that point, I had no real way of telling how I was without other people telling me how I was, which I had been doing really since I was a kid and decided I wanted to be a doctor. And meanwhile, was navigating being a physician in hard ways like we were just talking about. And even though I was pretty good at managing patients and even medical education roles, I was not good at managing my own feelings or even naming them. And so got pretty burnt out really early on, had a couple of kids who also didn't have any way of telling me that I was doing a good job, it turns out. Like I kept thinking that I would have some evidence that I was being a good mom, but my first kid was super colicky. And so all the evidence pointed to me being a really bad mom. And then my second kid had some like problems and was failure to thrive. And I just made that mean I was the worst mom in the world and dove like pretty steeply into postpartum depression and anxiety and completely lost any internal compass that I had. Tried a whole bunch of things like psychiatrist and SSRIs and thinking that maybe I wasn't supposed to be a mom and a doctor. So I scaled time back at work and I felt worse. And I thought maybe I should be more of a doctor. So I scaled time up at work and hired childcare and nothing was working um, until I found a coach. And we will dive into that in one second. But yeah. man, thank you for being so vulnerable. I mean, I think, first of all, I think we also have to remember that superheroes also have feelings and also have weak spots, right? I mean, Superman yeah. has that kryptonite thing, right? <laughs> Even a superhero isn't perfect. But yeah, I mean, I, I have a tattoo on my arm that says I am enough. Just I had to remind myself. It's not the best tattoo, I'm just going to say. But 
it seemed like a good thing at the time. But uh, yeah, yeah, I can resonate with a lot of what you said and grateful that you're in the position that you're in now. And and I'm I'm looking forward to hearing more about how you climbed out of that. So, all right, Adrian, you're up. I'm smiling. I love your tattoo. I just got my first tattoo a couple weeks ago and it says, honey, there is no right way. Nice. And somebody asked me what that meant to me. And I said, it means like, dude, freaking be nice to yourself. And she said, why didn't you just have that tattooed on your arm? (laughs) Dude, dude, just be nice to yourself. Oh, God. Um, So then I thought, oh, okay, well, that one will be my next one on the other arm. Um, Okay. So, hi, I'm Adrian Mann. I'm also an internist. I'm a hospitalist, and I work at the Veterans Medical Center in Denver. Like Tyra, I'm also a certified life coach. And I can't, like Tyra, also, I can't remember a time where I didn't want to be a physician. And I think, you know, for me, what I remember most vividly is like being maybe 10, 12. And I did a research project for school where I made a paper mache mountain that had bat guano inside. I was really into the hot zone. And I thought that I would do a, I thought I would do infectious disease and like work in the hot zone. And little did I know how close to reality that actually came over the past couple of years. In fact, full circle, I got an email today about Ebola. So weird. Yeah, we have been in the hot zone, right? right? So oddly enough, ended up- You were well prepared. Closer than I could have um, really imagined. But my path through burnout was kind of undulating in medical school a little bit in, actually, I had kind of two bumps of it in medical school. Um, One related to feeling like this isn't coming easy for me. And so something must be wrong with me. That was the neuro block, second year of medical school. And then the second bump for me was the neuroclinical rotation, where it turns out, because I never learned this stuff during the neuro block, because I never went to class and put my head in the sand, that block ended up being really bad and I failed it. And then I made that mean like, oh, I really don't belong here. Like everybody's going to find out that I don't really know what I'm doing. But for the remainder of my clinical time and most of residency, I was able to kind of, well, the story I'll tell is like, I was able to fool everybody. Like everybody thought I was great. I got good evals. I did a chief resident year in my residency program. I got my dream job. And shortly after, really similar to Tyra, I was kind of chasing a whole lot of different roles, like full speed ahead, because everybody said, hey, you'd be great at this. You'd be great at this. Do this, do this. And so I had taken on a leadership position in my hospital. I was doing education work. I was a mom of two kids, and I had had some complicated um, pregnancies and deliveries. And my response to all of this was just eating any feeling that I had. And so once I came back from my second kid who was in the NICU for a long time, I had like eaten every feeling I had felt in the probably preceding three years and was really unhappy. I couldn't see myself in myself, like literally looking in the mirror. I didn't recognize myself, but also in all of the domains of my work and my personal life, I didn't recognize myself as I was showing up. And so that was the pits for me. And just like Tyra, I found a coach and learned through coaching tools to that like I learned it was possible to think about my thinking, which I think I knew like was a thing, but I didn't think that that was a thing for me. But through coaching, I learned 
the reason I have the urge to overeat or the reason I have the urge to have that glass of wine at night or the reason I'm online shopping instead of studying for boards is because I'm uncomfortable with my discomfort. And so having and building vocabulary around that, I thought, oh man, I needed this as a medical trainee. And so made it my mission to bring coaching to medical education. And Tyra was on a really similar path, although we didn't know it at the same time. And so when she came back to Colorado and was also getting certified as a coach, we built a coaching program for um, women resident physicians at the University of Colorado called Better Together. So I want to hear some details about Better Together. And I'm not sure whether to have you guys talk about that first or to talk about the difference between coaching and therapy. I'm kind of thinking we should start there. What do you guys think? Yeah, sure. Okay, you're nodding. So because people listening out there, when I heard you say, think about thinking, you know, I'm, I'm trying to feel my feelings. I mean, I've seen therapists on and off for a lot of those same things. So, and, and then you sought out coaches. So I'm really interested, like how you did that, why you did that. I don't think that was ever a thing. Certainly not when I was a resident a gazillion years ago, but so, so maybe talk a little bit, what's a coach and how is it different than therapy? Yeah, sure. So I was similarly the first the first coaching introduction that I had was my friend back in 2015 was going through coach certification. I was pregnant with my first. She went to coach me and get feedback on it and record it. And I like, I rolled my way into it. It's like, okay, life coaching is not a thing. To me, it was like somewhere on the order of like naturopathic medicine. And I was in a very like Western allopathic medical center. I didn't believe it unless there was evidence. And there wasn't evidence. There was, there's not even a regulation system. Sort of anybody can call themselves a life coach. So I was really hesitant to be involved, but I loved my friend and kind of would do anything for her. And so I said, okay, fine, Jennifer, you can coach me. And in that first coaching session, this is now 2016. I'm in full-blown postpartum depression, really struggling with my first. In that first coaching session, I remember so many things changed for me and got hooked hired a coach for the next couple of years, put myself through an online self-coaching program at the Life Coach School, then ultimately became certified myself. And I too, I had tried several therapists and I think therapy is wonderful and often has a symbiotic relationship with coaching depending on what's going on. But I do think they're separate things. There's tons of different definitions. One that I will call out right away is that coaching does not diagnose or treat. And so that's really important for Adrian and I in our coaching program, since we are in another profession that does diagnose and treat. But when we are coaches, we're really clear with our trainees that yes, we are doctors, but in this space, we are not your doctors. You're not making any diagnoses. You're not entering a treatment program. There's no sort of monitoring of you. There's no DSM criteria. There's it's not clinical at all. In that vein, another way that this has been described to me is, um, you know, humans kind of function on a scale from like negative 10 to positive 10, where zero is a pretty neutral state of well-being. You're doing fine. Positive 10 is where you're flourishing, doing really well. You're in flow a lot of the time. You're moving towards goals. You're doing kind of living your best life. And negative 10 is down at like, you know, barely able to get out of the bed, having 
scary suicidal thoughts, perhaps engaging in pathologic behavior, really not functioning well at all. And therapy is sort of can be talk-based and metacognitive and use similar tools, but is really focused on people that are in the sort of negative 10 to zero space, moving someone from a place of not functioning to a place of pretty neutral, able to function. And coaching sort of takes people from that negative two to zero space and moves them into the positive space. Or maybe even they're at a positive seven and they want to explore what it would be like to get to an eight or a nine. And so it's people that are functioning pretty well and are interested in flourishing even more. Now, of course, that's... Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to ask you a question about, and maybe this, you can tell me if we can talk about it later or not. But so if you're working, like, let's say you're coaching somebody and you're like, this person's really struggling. Is that at a point where you might say, hey, I think therapy would really be helpful here. We're, you know, we're kind of stuck or how would you deal with that? Yeah, I think so. And in our space, a lot of people come to us already with diagnoses. They may are even already have a therapist. And so if we are in a space where that's not the case and we sense some kind of dangerous thoughts, I think actually being a physician gives us an extra privilege because we already have a framework for diagnosing sort of not functioning well people. And so that is a real privilege and benefit to having an MD. And so if we do find that, that's exactly what we do. We have sort of mental health resources in our program and in other programs that we work with that we can get the residents or the trainees that we work with hooked up. But I'll say once they're also getting help for mental health diagnoses, that doesn't exclude coaching at all. In fact, we commonly will say, we won't give you therapy on your depression, but we can coach about your thoughts about your depression. Hmm. Interesting kind of dynamic. And I, at first, when you were talking about sort of the negative function to zero to better, I almost thought that was kind of like a relay race, baton, like handoff. Yeah. But it almost sounds like now you're just running together. You're, you're not, and, you, and, and at some point, somebody drops back a little, somebody moves forward. And Adrian, what, what are your thoughts on the coaching versus therapy, anything else? And we're talking about just in case listeners get confused, we're, we're talking about physicians coaching physicians. Um, so anything you wanted to add to what Tyra said? I echo what Tyra said, and I'll just add the example is we may have people who um, have a diagnosis of anxiety, but and they're frustrated by their anxiety showing up in certain ways for them at work. That won't be us saying like, tell me why you're anxious. It might be like, okay, anxiety for you shows up in these ways at work. Let's talk a little bit more about that. What are you, what are your thoughts around your anxiety? What's holding you back? You know, so like Tyra said, it's not us trying to treat the anxiety, but us understanding the impact of where that might exist and how it shows up. It almost sounds like sort of managing your strategies a little yeah, bit. It can be. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, let's talk about maybe it'll become a little bit clearer as we're talking about better together. We'll talk about the program. What What is that? Oh, sure. Um, so Better Together started out as a six-month um, group coaching program for women GME physicians at the University of Colorado. Um, Tyra and I built this program with grant funding from the University of Colorado Department of Medicine. And we um, really, it was funny, we thought maybe we'd send a couple of emails out um, through a couple of listservs and maybe 10 or 20 people would raise their hands. 
but a hundred people signed up within a couple of weeks. And so we thought, okay, we have an opportunity here to study it um, really rigorously. So I'll let Tyra talk about the study, but what the program is, is a web-based program that folks can engage in, in three primary ways. So we had live calls, which happened on Zoom. And so this was happening all in 2021. So we were all you know, connecting remotely at that time. And it was really perfect. So we had live calls on Zoom, which any number of people could attend. So five people could be there or 50 people could be there. And folks could raise their hand and say, I'd like to get coaching on my relationship with my mother-in-law, or I got crappy feedback in the operating room today. And they would tell a story about something going on in their life. And we would help them look at that story using coaching tools. So that's the first way that folks could engage in the program is in the live calls. Those were recorded and kept in a repository for folks to watch asynchronously later if they weren't able to attend live. Then we have a secure, um, on the website, there's a platform where folks can write in and say, hey, this is what's going on for me. They would write a couple paragraphs of something and we would respond back and post it to this forum. And that was a way for folks to get coached anonymously, really anytime, day or night. So folks are on the night shift or swing shift and they're sitting at their computer frustrated by something and they could type in and we would respond back within 24 hours. And so everybody in the program can read that and say, oh, I've been there. I know about that. That's happened to me before and apply that coaching back in their life too. That sounds um, like dear, like a dear Abby. It kind of is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Dear Abby for docs. That's the second way. And then the third way was we had weekly modules that covered all a range of different topics pertinent to the trainee experience. But in the early sessions, we teach a metacognitive tool we call the thought model, and that helps people break down the narrative that they tell about their experience of life um, into what I call kind of like a soap note for your brain. But we teach that tool very early, and then we apply that tool over the course of the six-month program on topics like feedback, approval addiction, perfectionism, imposter syndrome, how those things show up in life. We talk about making big transitions, and we talk about envisioning the future self and how to basically build the life that that you want, even when the phase of life you're in right now isn't where you want to be. Um, so there was weekly self-study modules um, that they could take at their own pace that covered all of those topics. Wow. I'm writing down some of those and I'm like, I would have loved that. I actually, I'm, I might like still love that. So we'll talk about towards the end about listeners who aren't eligible for your program, but might be interested in coaching and where they might seek that out from themselves. But so, so you had a hundred people sign up, which is incredible, but just speaks to the fact that this must have resonated, right? And then you said, hey, let's do a randomized controlled trial, which is you know, evidence-based. That's that's the way, that's the gold standard, right? And and you're going to, you know, how did this better together model work? And so Tyra, you want to talk a little bit about the study? and Yeah, sure. And, and I will first say neither Adrian nor I envisioned ourselves as researchers when we started off on this. Our first meeting over coffee two years ago and change, I still remember envisioning, I remember calling it cute, a cute little study with 
but not 20. That sounds like something a woman would say, right? That we're just, this sounds like uber imposter syndrome. Who are we to do this study? Totally. Oh, yeah. yeah. We, that's exactly how we felt. That is how we felt. Good that you did it. We you both did. had grants. I mean, we had applied for these grants. It was so funny. I applied for a grant when I was still working in Seattle. This was right. I moved right in the middle of the pandemic in 2020. And through um, an internal medicine society and Adrian had a grant here at CU and our grant applications, we've looked at them. I mean, they are like creepily identical. We both wanted to do the same thing. And I think it just stemmed from a similar thought that was like, I wish someone had given me these tools in residency. I'm going to do it. Adrian said a couple months ago, this better together feels like a gift for our old selves just love that so much. That is truly what it feels like. But yes, when we sent out that initial recruitment email and got so many responses so quickly, we realized this was going to be much bigger than we envisioned as it should be. And the thought of studying it you know, in a gold standard way entered my mind. And so we kind of laid out what it would look like. We got a research mentor, which was super, super valuable. And we decided to go for it. We wanted to be able to say for sure that this worked. And we also really wanted to make a case for why institutions should value this um, in a way that makes it sustainable. And here in academia, you know, you'll never make that case unless you have good scholarship and good evidence to back yourself up. So we decided to do it. We split our 101 participants who had already enrolled Back in December of 2020, we had them take a whole bunch of baseline surveys. We mainly made our program to mitigate or um, hopefully reverse burnout. And so that's our primary outcome. But we also were curious about imposter syndrome, self-compassion, moral injury, among other sort of internal questions. And so we used validated scales that had been used in residence before and sort of validated in that population to measure those things. And we gave everybody that survey with those baseline indexes. And then we randomized them to a control group who did not receive our coaching program from January to July, 2021, or an intervention group who did receive our coaching program from January to July. And Again, kind of like Adrian mentioned, our coaching program has all of these options for them, but none of it is necessary, mandatory, evaluated, or sort of required to move forward. And so it was sort of an intent to treat model. They were in the intervention group, even if they chose not to show up at all, we counted them in the intervention group. So the results, and we're going to get to this in a minute, it wasn't like every participant was doing all the things. Yes. Some were doing some were doing just a little and some were doing a lot, the overachievers, right? I mean, um, most but were then, maybe doing none, actually. And wow. in the intervention group, because we, you know, wanted it to fit what would happen in the real world. And there were, I shouldn't say most were doing none. Most were not getting directly coached. So our coaching program is on a group platform and it's a super vulnerable new ask if you're not sort of comfortable with showing your emotions in front of your peers. That can be a really scary thing. Most of them were not getting coached, but many were listening to the recorded calls after the fact. Some of them were even getting together with their friends to listen to the recorded calls, maybe doing the work, reading other people's Dear Abby, ask for coaching style questions. 
We know this because we also did a qualitative study with our participants, 17 of our participants from the intervention group. And many of those people who did the qualitative study got interviewed for an hour, told us like, oh, sorry, I never actually got coached, but actually this program really helped me. I can't believe I'm not the only one who thinks this way. So it's kind of passive a little bit. I mean, they were like, I mean, they're reading other people's experiences. They're listening to other people's experiences. And somehow that was good for them. You know, it's funny that you brought up Dear Abby, because I remember reading Dear Abby, like when it was in the newspaper or my mom reading it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's almost exactly that phenomenon of like, oh, look, I'm not the only one who's annoyed when this thing happens, or I'm not the only one who struggles with uh, this type of relationship or whatever. And how probably Dear Abby was so popular because she really normalized. Yeah. What is it about those? I, I, I read um, Real Simple Magazine and they have yeah. Miss, Man- Miss Manners. At one point, yeah. I thought they took it out. I was like, no, <laughs> you know, what do I do when my mother-in-law gives my kids too many presents? Yeah, exactly. And I I love the, co- half the time, most of the time, none of those questions pertain to anything about me, but it's fascinating. I love it. So I could see where this might really appeal to people to read about sort of other people's problems that maybe they are like mine. Yeah, it turns out they usually are. And that's one of the things that we found in our qualitative study, which we'll go back to the quantitative results because they're important to talk about. But what we learned was that it is really powerful to see yourself in other people and to remember that you're not alone. And, And that's not to minimize the hard experiences that all of us are having, but only to say, oh, right, like, I'm not the only one who thinks I don't belong here. I'm not the only one who's worried I'm about to be found out. I'm, you know, gosh, how much, if I can find compassion for somebody else who feels that way, can I find compassion for myself when I feel that way? And so that's what we're trying to like move gently towards. So this is not a touchy-feely, fuzzy study (laughs) in that. You guys put this together. It's got some pretty solid parameters, measures, tests. And okay, this is like the big reveal. What happened? What'd you find? Um, well, I'll start by saying we did have a biostatistician on our team that did a power analysis for us in the beginning. We cut ourselves off at 100 because we were new coaches. We weren't sure if we could manage more than 100 at the time, and we didn't want to under-deliver. So just based on feasibility, we arbitrarily picked 100. And our biostatistician said, you know, you're using the Maslock burnout inventory. In doing my power analysis, in other studies of wellness interventions in residents, it looks like you need between five or 600 of them to move the Maslock burnout index, even one point. So you are not powered to find a difference in this RCT. Good luck. They were like, oh, all right, well, we'll do a proof of concept study. Um, But in the end, we actually moved the needle four points with just our 50 in the intervention group. So what that tells us is that our intervention is really powerful and probably we is underestimating even the full impact of it given our power analysis. So we dropped burnout specifically in the emotional exhaustion domain, also in the overall burnout domain. Emotional exhaustion. Yeah, the Maslach burnout inventory splits burnout into sort of three factors. It describes emotional exhaustion. This is all feelings about your work specifically. So being sort of 
depleted by your work or feeling exhausted emotionally at the end of the day, like you have nothing left to give. This resonates a lot with a lot of physicians. Emotional exhaustion is the facet that is most highly correlated with other markers of poor well-being, depression, anxiety, even suicidal ideation is correlated with high emotional exhaustion. So that's the one that we were super interested in. And it's the one that we did reach statistical significance in, in our pilot. The other two trended towards significance. We didn't quite make it, but they're depersonalization and personal efficacy or accomplishment. So depersonalization, just sort of feeling numb, sort of seeing patients just as a number, not a real person, not feeling any sort of mission anymore. And then decreased personal accomplishment, not sort of turning those feelings on yourself, feeling like you don't matter, nothing matters. Mm, not a good place to be. No, I think of the ENR. It's really, it's really interesting at the, we had a leadership conference with the American Academy of Pediatrics and the number one resolution was support for members who are advocating for children and to support because of adversity that they're experiencing and moral injury. That was the number one resolution. Mm. It, it was, you know, people feeling the weight of this work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that there was something about the coming together. I mean, you know, we're, we're beings that want to be with each other. That's how we, um, Heather Forkey, who does a lot of work in trauma, talks about fight, flight, or freeze for the trauma responses. But the other is affiliate. And that's the one where we are with one another that kind of saves us. Yeah. But when you're a resident and you're in your head thinking you're doing a crappy job, you know, you don't know what you're doing. Other people may still look at women as, oh, you're a woman. You don't, you look like you're 10. What are you doing? How old are you? Where's the real doctor? Um, you know, I think that there's still a lot of that, you know, so I can see. And then is the physical and emotional toil of taking care of really sick people. Yeah. Yeah. Among <laughs> who wouldn't be, I mean, it's kind of like, well, who wouldn't be burnt out? I, before we get too much further, I just wanted to ask, why did you pick women? Oh, to do this study, so it's it's mostly because everything we measured is so much more prevalent in women. So burnout is anywhere from two to ten times as prevalent in women compared to their male matched peers. Um, similar, if not worse, results with self-compassion, imposter syndrome, and moral injury too. We're, women just struggle in all the wellness markers for reasons that are not surprising, I think, um, and just to win where the need was. And suicidal ideation and suicide attempts, um, completions in women physicians is the highest. Yeah. Uh, more than men, which surprised me because in general, men tend to complete suicide more often than women. But in that group, physicians, it's women. So so you picked the group that were suffering the most and where impact could make the most difference. Yeah. What else about the study surprised you? Or did it not surprise you? You're like, yes, this is what we think. Well, I'd say that See? the impact in that we also reached significance in improving self-compassion and we somehow cured imposter syndrome sort of based on where our metric had drawn their line between positive and negatives. I was frankly shocked by the whole thing. Once our, at the very beginning, when our statistician said, you're not powered to find a result in any of these domains, I, I gave up the idea that we would. 
and thought, okay, we're going to need to do a bigger study. So we'll just do this and see how it goes. So the results were shocking. They were the fact that they were bigger in impact than prior physician coaching studies was maybe even more shocking. Um, but actually, I think made sense after what Adrian talked about with the qualitative study. We're, as far as we know, we're the first group to study in such a rigorous way group coaching. And I think that's why we got a bigger impact because despite the big, vulnerable, like large amount of activation energy that's necessary to get coached in front of a group, that ends up not only impacting you much more, but it impacts everybody who's listening because not only are they hearing the coaching tools that probably apply to them too, but they're having to take that situation and figure out how it does work in their life. So that even extra layer of application, I think, is just multiplicative. Well, and before we go any further, I'm going to say, I am so proud of you. I feel sad that you thought it was going to be a cute little study because that sounds like something that women internalize, that what we do is like, you know, Barbie shoes. But you know, that what you did, I mean, you just said this was one of the most rigorous studies that's been done on coaching and impact, which is huge. I mean, this is, this is really, really important work and you did it right. You were smart about it. I mean, go you. Thank you. I mean, that's really, you know, never underestimate the power of a woman, right? That's right. I'm going to practice receiving that compliment. So thank you. (laughs) On behalf of Tyra, we received that compliment. Yeah, I so Adrian, what about you? What what surprised you? Oh, it's so funny. I, you know, and not a researcher, like I or you know, prior to this, I didn't consider myself a researcher. I had no doubt that it was gonna work, but I didn't know what the numbers were gonna look like. I think it's funny because like for me, for my N of one, it was the most powerful thing that's happened to me as an adult is like learning this concept. And so I wasn't surprised by the fact that it works, but I was surprised by the extent that it did. The other thing that I'm really proud of, and Tyra touched on briefly, just since we're doing group coaching, you know, there's evidence in other interventions for smoking cessation or other places where group activities can be really powerful. And so I think we're in medicine, especially coaching has been studied mostly in one-on-one models. And um, what we're proud of with this program is that it offers a way for institutions to substantially invest in large groups of people who otherwise wouldn't have access to this thing. So historically, coaching has been like an executive level thing, like, you know, deans and department chairs and division heads get access to professional coaches, but we're offering certified, you know, professional trained, not just amateur coaches to the people who are working the most and the hardest and the and who otherwise are the least represented. Making it available to the masses. <laughs> yeah, and we right. think that's important because these are the people who are going to be working for you later. So investing in them in this way now, we think will save institutions money over the long run. It's, um, hard, it's hard to be a good doctor when you don't feel good and people make more mistakes, right? Yeah, right. It's not good to not feel good and to drag around like you and pretend, I mean, you know, you guys mentioned, you know, some people go home and drink too much or they're, you know, abusing their bodies in other ways or indulging in other, you know, behaviors that are not good for them and and then trying to be caregivers. And oh, it's so much to ask. You know, people. so this is 
this is a huge thing. And it almost feels like that they should be required. <laughs> I mean, that it's just part of your, I mean, wouldn't it be nice yeah. if every resident, male, female, um, non-binary, you know, that as you come on board, you know, this is, hey, this is part of what you do. And here's the options for you. You know, it's so funny. Like, we we kind of think every time we have this conversation, it's like, yeah, it should be, you know, these are tools and skills that everybody should learn. It should be where it should be offered. Okay, in residency, yes. But what about in medical school? What, what about in college? What about in high school? Shouldn't we learn how to do our taxes and also manage our emotions? Like, how early can we start talking about this and teaching this? Yeah. And I think we should weave it in longitudinally. I mean, I have this dream of starting a med school where we integrate coaching tools right along with the medical curriculum. Like you learn how to process grief as you're learning goal-directed medical therapy for heart attacks. Because just like you were saying at the very beginning, this is so hard. It's hard in a pandemic and it was hard before the pandemic. And it's harder if you don't know how to name or process an emotion. It is so much harder. It's like blasphemy that we don't give physicians these tools. We just send them out into the world. They try harder, do more. Yeah. Here's your Krebs cycle diagram. Good luck. Like it's not enough. Well, and I think patients want it. I, I had, my husband had really awful medical thing happen. Gosh, it's been a long time, 20, 2010. Um, anyway, it was horrible. It was the summer of hell for three months and um, I still have PTSD from it. But the most critical thing that happened with a physician was when he cried. Mm. Middle of the night, horrible surgery. I mean, it just was a mess from the get-go. He had six surgeries. And middle of the night, we're tired, we're worried. And this guy comes out and he just had tears in his eyes. And he said, I am just so sorry. This has not gone well. You know, and I mean, I wasn't like, oh my God, what'd you do wrong? You know, it wasn't that. I was like, this guy really cares about me and cares about my husband in an incredibly deep way. Yeah. And I mean, I, after that, I trusted him to do everything. And the other was a nurse, a nurse who questioned, you shouldn't, you know, question the doctor who kept questioning and saying, this isn't right. This isn't right. This is wrong. And she was right and saved his leg. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that being able to trust your emotion yeah. is hugely important and then and then not get in trouble for it you know to be made to feel small or having oh you're oh you're over emotional yeah you know i mean we are so afraid as physicians to have feelings because okay. people will think less of us if we do or trust us less is that i think the fallacy as you're saying you're kind of yeah after more oh absolutely i was like i adore you and you have my full trust I mean, it's so interesting because that's humanism. It's just the acknowledgement that we're not like God, <laughs> right. you know, that that we're not robots who make no mistakes, who have no feelings, who just like show up and like power on and then do the thing and then power down when we get home. And like seeing humanity reflected in each other is important. And I think the other thing is that group, I, I think you talked about at the very beginning, this group think of you know, I mean, just the three of us talking, it's like, yeah, I get that. That happened to me or, you know, and then it's like, oh, you're my new best friends. You yeah. know what I mean? I mean, you just feel supported like, oh, it wasn't just me. I'm not a bad person. I'm not a bad mom because my kid was colicky. I mean, I thought I was. I I mean, that was totally me. Um, 
and nobody said anything different. And first of all, I had no idea what colic was. I'm a pediatrician and I'm like, yeah, colic, you know, kids cry. I'm like, hours of crying is not just nothing. I mean, one of the things I'm also thinking if it didn't just escape my brain, oh, it may have. Never mind. <laughs> we'll come back. We'll It'll come, come back. back to me. Well, I think the other thing I was going to ask you about, because this initial study that you did was mostly white heterosexual women. And and when you expand this study, and maybe you can talk a little bit about kind of your next big project, is will you include a broader population to see, does this really apply to maybe, uh, you know, people that are underrepresented in, in medicine? Yes, we are expanding now. We are in our expansion. So another thing that we learned from the group coaching model was that it is so scalable. One-on-one coaching takes an incredible amount of resources and coordination and frankly, money. But we are able to coach, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people. Whoever wants to show up to a call is benefiting from the coaching that's happening there. And so at one point it was like, well, you know, we got 50 people on this call. Why not 500? Why not 5,000? Let's go big. Let's see what we can do. So we spent last year sort of meeting people and networking and seeing if other institutions were interested. And it turns out a lot of them are. And here we are in a um, national multi-site RCT. We still are focusing on women in this study, but one of the goals of this study was to get a much more diverse participant population. Our population in the pilot was very white, very homogenous, and completely representative of the CU graduate medical education population. So Denver is just unfortunately a very white city. Um, and so we weren't able to test this intervention in a more diverse crowd. So that was a huge goal for us. We have 30 institutions that have signed up for this next one. And we are all over the United States, everywhere from Alaska to New York, Georgia, everywhere in between. We've got academic representation and smaller community, more rural programs. That was our aim. Um, And we have over a thousand participants. So we did that. We also have recruited over 10 physician certified coaches to provide additional calls to support that additional volume, which has gone really well. And we randomized them one more time. We are coaching our intervention group right now. Um, and we are in the process of also considering other studies. I can let Adrian tell you if the other cohorts were sort of intending to offer this to in the spring. When you were looking at other coaches, as I'm thinking, you know, a Black women, it may be very different experience and having a coach who has had their experiences. So have you included uh, a diverse group of coaches? Yeah, that was also one of our priorities. And we're lucky. We One of the criteria that we have for our coaches in order to maintain kind of internal validity from as far as the coaching that we're doing was that all of our coaches are certified through the Life Coach School. And um, there's just a large amount of physicians who've certified through there. And we're lucky to have met and brought on up until this point, mostly other women coaches, but with a diverse background and all different kinds of diversity. So yeah, we're really proud of that. And one thing to add just about the population of our current study is it actually is more, how to demographic, the demographics show more diversity than the baseline of their their institutions. I'm I'm not sure if I'm saying that, but yeah, I know. Yep. Yeah. And so that's huge. And 
We know that um, those people from backgrounds underrepresented in medicine also suffer from burnout, imposter syndrome, perfectionism, all of those things also at higher rates. And so we want to be offering this program to them and having representation among our coaches who match that of our participants. So we're proud of the team we've built as far as that goes. We, of course, also know that men need coaching too. And so we're planning a new arm of our program for men at the University of Colorado, which hopefully will launch in the spring of this year. And that is on our way to what we anticipate will be more of a co-ed program. But we want to make sure that these results are generalizable to men as well. So we're studying them separately first before we do a more co-ed program that we'll have. What we envision is a co-ed program that has like intersectional focused calls. So we may have coaching calls specific for women of color in medicine or parents in medicine or any other intersection that makes that anybody could identify as and have calls specific for that. And one thing that this is what I was going to remember to say before Tara reminded me, thank you. We're able to coach right now. There's 500 people in the cohort that we're doing and we're coaching 500 people on five coach hours per week. And so we host five group calls a week on average. Um, So in five hours of coach time, we can touch 500 people five times, right? Like that that's the most we could do. And that's unprecedented in any other coaching intervention that we've seen. How do you guys keep up with all of the kind of the questions coming in on the, on your sort of, you know, the written part? Not, yeah. Yeah. The, the Dear Abby's. Yeah. The Dear your, Abby. Like is your, is your mailbox like, Those right now are Tyra and I, and we alternate who's responding to them. And um, it's manageable. It is manageable. They're also really fun. And so whereas I still experience some inbox dread for my Epic electronic medical record, I have like inbox excitement for those. So they feel just so aligned that it hasn't felt burdensome. I think if if the volume of those increases, it's so easy to have our physician coach collaborators get in there and do some written coaching as well and spread out among however many we have under Better Together. It's They don't take very much time and they're pretty fun. Yeah, and I'm thinking about the scalability of this. I mean, again, if you have the data that says this is important, these people feel better, they want to come to work, they're not drinking too much when they're at home. Right. Um, these are people t- who are like, resilient, right? Like what we're trying, you know, we're not saying be more resilient, do more yoga. Here's a cart with some snacks on it. You know, like these are people who are tremendously talented, hardworking, resilient, caring human beings who like also need a different type of be able well, to be, you're not at zero. You're, you know, maybe you're not always at plus yeah. 10. Even that's okay. Worst often, right? Yeah. Even when we're the most burnt out, we're still hyper-functional. Like we're still showing up to work 60 to 80 plus hours a week, right? They're still taking really good care of patients. It's incredible. Well, but what a difference if, you know, you get up in the morning and you're like, I love my job. Yeah. I love Mm -hmm. my job. I don't dread my job. And I mean, it's not going to be that way every day, of course. But if that's the feeling that you, I I love my life. I, I feel balanced in my life. I can say no. I can, I can take a minute for myself. Yeah. Yeah. There's a real cost argument. I think that's where you're going is in just as there's a cost argument for preventing burnout in all ways, physicians 
not being depressed, not being anxious, not having suicidal thoughts, and not leaving their jobs. So the retention argument is real. And I think, you know, once there's a cost argument, it'll be really easy to make a case for institutions paying for this kind of work for us to do. Isn't that, that just, is just so tiresome, <laughs> you know, that you always have to boil it down to, to money. But well, behind me are huge fireworks going off because I, this is just really cool. I, I hope that you guys appreciate that this is like really big. I mean, you have 30 programs participating, 30, so much for your cute little study. I mean, who knew? Who knew? You're like the real deal. You're both researchers. You get to own that. Put that on. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. And and this, again, you know, there's things that I've done. I mean, I've huge imposter syndrome before. And, and you know, even still, I mean, I have to say, you know, if I'm not seeing patients because I'm retired from clinical care, am I still a pediatrician? Well, yeah, I am. But, it, it you know, it's kind of a identity thing, you know? And yeah. so... At all stages of this, I mean, even to say, well, I'm not seeing kids anymore feels like, oh, my God, what kind of a person are you? What kind of a pediatrician doesn't see it? Maybe I need a coach. So, you know, I just think this is tremendous. And and not again, I think for listeners, if you have an idea about something, pursue it. Don't feel like you have to hide it under a bushel, you know, that this is, you know, bring it out. Let it shine. This reminds me just because I love this book so much. I just finished it. I think every woman should read it. Lessons in Chemistry. It is absolutely brilliant woman in the early 60s who's a chemist who has to deal with all, you know, the things that women weren't supposed to be doing. And it's beautiful. It's a real, and it's fun. It's a really fun read. So uh, I'll make sure I put that link in the show notes. So I'm excited for you guys. Um, when will this study be done? When will you have results? Well, the study part is technically over as of January. Okay. And I realized now I didn't mention this, but our poor control group isn't so poor. We offer coaching to the control group after the study is over. So we don't withhold coaching from anybody. So we'll then be coaching our control group from January till May or February till May. Um, but the study itself, so we will post test everybody in December, at the end of December, when the coaching program is over, and then we'll have those results. You know, it takes us some time to get them analyzed and a lot more time to get them written up, but hopefully sometime in 2023. Wow. <laughs> I, you know, at some point, are you going to have to stop your study because you can't withhold treatment? Yeah. Is that what's going to happen? Like we can't yeah. do this. This is ethically wrong. <laughs> I hope so. I hope that soon we can stop doing RCTs and just say like, let's just work proving that it works in other populations. But without the RCT bit would make me happy. I mean, the other thing is we want to have a sustainable model where we're able to just offer coaching without having to keep applying for grants to fund it. <laughs> but we're working on that. Yeah, right, right. Well, for people that are out there, and we'll, we'll kind of wrap this up. Um, I see a little friend has wandered into the background here from one of uh, Adrian's little girl just wandered in little cute thing she's sitting in a chair always welcome to the pediatric meltdown our little little ones if people out there are listening and say hey you know I don't belong at a university I don't have this I'm in some rural community where can they find a coach if that's something they were thinking might be helpful so many places Tara what are your thoughts so first of all, I'll say if you are in a medical center, if you have an institution and you're a physician or in healthcare, 
you can contact us on our website is bettertogetherphysiciancoaching.com. And as Adrian mentioned, we're growing and expanding, onboarding more coaches and eventually hope to be able to serve a pretty broad community. If you're not part of a coaching institution and you're just looking for individual coaching, we we will advocate for the Life Coach School for a long time since that's sort of where we started and feel a big pull towards. There are hundreds of physician coaches who have been trained through there. You can see them on the lifecoachschool.com and we can certainly vouch for that process. They could get hooked up if they went to that that site, yeah. Life School lifecoachschool.com. That's right. And I think, you know, it's certainly true that anyone can coach anyone. It doesn't have to be somebody that you identify with, but the shared experience of being coached by someone who sort of just knows what it has been like for you is pretty valuable. And so I think I'd probably start there. Okay. All right. I'll make sure I put that in the show notes. All of our coaches who are featured on our site, who coach as volunteer faculty for our program, many of them also coach as in their professional lives. And so if you want to look at our team page and um, check out our coaches, go for it. They're incredible. Okay. That's a good idea. I'll, I'll include that as well. We'll make sure that we put that in. Well, listen, I want to wrap this up because I know you guys have lives outside of podcast interviews. So just, and I'm, I'm wondering now, I'll, I want to see what your answer is. So if you could go back and give yourselves advice when you were residents, what would it be? How about you, Tyra? That's such a good question. It's I have so many answers that I would want to tell my past self that include all of my knowledge from right now, but I don't actually think I would say that because I wasn't ready to hear it. I don't even think I would believe it from my own freaking self. And so I think the biggest piece of advice I would have given myself is to stop fighting my anxiety and instead just let it be there. That first coaching call, my coach challenged me to see if I could be grateful for my anxiety. And that was a game changer. I did not know that was allowed. And if I had known that so much earlier. Mm, I love that. I did not know that was allowed. Wow. That's, that's powerful. All right, Adrian. What are you going to tell your uh, resident self? Well, I was just thinking like, what would I have actually believed? What I would believed and what I would offer myself might, might still be different things. I think two things. The first is what that tattoo I have on my arm. Like there's no right way. I think I thought and sometimes still catch myself thinking like there's a right way or a wrong way or a good way or a bad way for me to get wherever it is I'm going. And I think if I had known that that may not be true that would have felt like relief for at many different points in my life where I thought there wasn't, where I thought for sure I was doing it wrong. Um, (laughs) The second one I'd forgotten. So I guess it wasn't that powerful. Um, Yeah, that's the main one. (laughs) No worries. No worries. I love it. I mean, you know, this is a real conversation. This is not, this is not a lecture. So I just want to thank both of you for making time for me um, to do this. And I just think it's really exciting. And plus, it was a fun conversation. And you guys are rock stars. So, well, um, good luck with your study. And I'll look forward to seeing the results. I wondered, was there like a moment 
where there was like a reveal party for your results? Like, okay, we're going to all sit down and we're going to rip the Band-Aid off and see what the results are? Or did it just kind of come in? Like, it's almost like match day for your results, right? No, but we'll do that for the next one. We didn't take our team out to dinner and celebrate. We should totally. We should do like like a, a cake, like a reveal party, like a gender reveal, like balloons or cake. <laughs> I love it. So good. Yes. That's an idea. Here's how much we got thrown out. Yeah, yeah. How many points, you know, you can put up how many points it went down. So, well, listen, thanks. This has been super fun and good luck to you. And I, I'm so glad that you guys are doing this work. It's super important. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I love this conversation. It was just so fun. And I find these two women to be so incredibly inspiring. Here are my takeaways. Number one, both of our physician coaches experienced their own versions of burnout, self-doubt, approval addiction, and imposter syndrome, but not anymore. Instead, these brilliant, creative, and innovative physicians created a coaching model to support women medical trainees. Number two, coaching is a thought model based on functional improvement. It is not therapy with the diagnosing or treatment of mental health conditions. Number three, what they did. 50 participants were randomly assigned to the controlled group for this randomized control trial. The intervention group was offered a six-month web-based group coaching program, Better Together Physician Coaching, developed and facilitated by trained life coaches and physicians. This included live Zoom calls, a secure write-in post to a forum moderated by the coaches, and weekly modules. The control group received residency training as usual with no coaching during the study. The control group was offered the six-month coaching program after study completion. Number four, the primary outcome of burnout was measured using the Maslach Burnout Inventory subscales of emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and professional accomplishment. Number five, the secondary outcomes of imposter syndrome, self-compassion, and moral injury were assessed using the Young Imposter Syndrome Scale, Neff's Self-Compassion Scale short form, and the Moral Injury Symptom Scale healthcare professionals, respectively. Number six, what they found. After six months of professional coaching, emotional exhaustion decreased in the intervention group. They experienced a significant reduction in presence of imposter syndrome compared with controls, and self-compassion scores increased in the intervention group. Number seven, they had predicted that the study N would be too small to see a significant change, but it did. Number eight, most of the participants did not use the direct coaching platform, but instead used the online anonymous forum, and still they got results. Number nine, so why does this matter? Women physicians experience two to ten times burnout symptoms versus men, and this method is scalable, affordable versus traditional one-to-one -one coaching. And there's a cost argument with physicians not leaving jobs, not impaired, and not suicidal. Number 10. What's next? A multiple 30-site randomized controlled trial with 500 participants with a diverse population of both participants and coaches was launched in 2022. The program has been completed and data collection and analysis are in the works. Next up, co-ed programs and coaching. Number 11. The ultimate dream. 
Coaching Embedded in Medical School for All Students. Number 12. Are you a medical trainee or a teaching facility? Check out BetterTogetherPhysicianCoaching.com and enroll your program. Number 13. And finally, never underestimate the power of women with ideas. Many thanks to these two awesome guests and many, many thanks to all of you. I appreciate everything you do and the children in our country are depending on you, but we know you need to take care of yourselves to do a really great job. So you might consider life coaching and you can check out the show notes for resources that might be of benefit. Take care, have a great day, and I look forward to you joining me next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. Music was composed by Connor McHugh, and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much, and I hope you will join me next week.